Welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Today we've got Dr. Bill Soares, who's the Director of Harm Reduction Services in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Bay State Medical Center and an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine there. He's also a fellow at the Institute of Healthcare Delivery and Population Science at the University of Massachusetts Chan School of Medicine. And he is here today to talk specifically about harm reduction in the emergency department as it relates to opiate use disorder. This was a really interesting discussion to me because in the rest of our opioid-related series, we've talked about a lot of these pieces, but often very separate. And Dr. Soros is going to bring all of the components of an approach to general harm reduction for these patients in the emergency department all together into kind of a, a codified theory with some examples on how he has approached it. So I hope you enjoy listening. Dr. Soros, take it away. Thank you so much. It's an honor to talk with you about harm reduction in the emergency department. With regards to disclosures, I received research funding from the NIH to study opioid prescribing and opioid use disorder, but do not have any other relevant financial disclosures. In today's talk, we're going to cover the following. We'll start with a review of opioid use disorder as a disease, as well as the principle of harm reduction. We'll then spend time to talk about factors needed to incorporate harm reduction in the community emergency department as well as highlight some of the processes, successes, and barriers we've encountered at Bay State with regards to our buprenorphine, methadone, take-home Narcan, and drug use supply programs. Now, in order to emphasize the importance of harm reduction treatments, let's quickly review the disease that is opioid use disorder. Opioids, whether prescribed or illicit, primarily bind to the mu receptor in the brain, which regulates the perception of pain. However, mu receptors are also present in other areas of the brain, specifically those areas that control emotional responses and reward pathways, which explains some of the euphoria experienced with opioids. Now, as with any physiologic process, the body tries to compensate to reach homeostasis. In terms of opioid use, this figure demonstrates the changes that occur with repeated use. At first, the person experiences euphoric spike. However, even just after a few uses, the body downregulates receptors resulting in less and less euphoria with continued use. Importantly, the downregulation lowers the baseline when a person is not using opioids. Suddenly, as you see, the person's actually using opioids to feel normal and suffering withdrawal symptoms when use suddenly stops. The changes that occur in the brain can actually be visualized on imaging. This is the disease of substance use disorder, changes to the function of a brain, similar in some ways to a stroke. However, unlike a stroke, the changes in substance use disorder are not in the motor or sensory function, but in those reward areas, leading to some of the common manifestations we see in opioid use disorder, including cravings, compulsion of use, and use despite consequences. Now, this is really important because the pathophysiology of opioid use disorder helps us to understand the clinical manifestations. We all recognize opioid tolerance and withdrawal. But we often fail to recognize that things like impaired decision-making, emotional ability, poor impulse control actually can be markers of the severity of opioid use disorder. In fact, the single largest barrier in treating patients with substance use disorder is that we falsely attribute behaviors to the quality of the person rather than the severity of their disease. Let's take an example. This was a patient in our waiting room about a week ago. She was complaining of indigestion. Now, as emergency clinicians, I know you immediately recognize the severity of this patient's disease. Although, honestly, when we brought the patient back, she looked fine and was actually surprised by all the fuss we made. Now, unfortunately, we don't do the same things with our patients with opioid use disorder. 
The poor decision-making, the emotional ability, issues with impulse control are often viewed as part of their personality, rather than due in part to their severe disease. One only has to talk to folks after they've received medication and their withdrawals managed to actually understand who they are as people. The more difficult the behavioral issues, oftentimes the more severe their disease and the more they need compassion and treatment, not less. Finally, to those who still argue that opioid use disorder is a chronic disease and it's not in our scope of practice, I would counter with this. This is a study that shows the one-year mortality after an ED visit for a non-fatal overdose is 5%. That is incredibly high in such a young population. Further, it shows that engagement in medication treatment reduces that mortality by half. You're right. We don't typically treat chronic diseases as emergency providers. However, when those diseases lead to life-threatening conditions, the diabetic with DKA, the hypertensive emergency, the depressed suicidal patients, those are exactly the patients we treat. Opioid overdose, injection-related diseases, severe withdrawal, those are the life-threatening manifestations of opioid use disorder that is exactly the thing we should be treating. So then how do we approach treatment for patients with opioid use disorder? It's important to note that treatment is not a one-size-fits-all. Like other chronic diseases, to successfully engage your ED patients in treatment, you need to first understand if and how they're ready to engage. Harm reduction is the set of strategies and ideas aimed at reducing the negative consequence of drug use, built upon this idea that the person who uses drugs is a capable decision maker that can decide their readiness for treatment. A successful harm reduction program is adaptive, able to meet patients whatever stage they are, whether they're ready for medication or not. In our health system, harm reduction for ED patients with opioid use disorder looks like this. Drawing from the five A's of tobacco sensation, we determine if the patient has opioid use disorder, advise them as medical professionals on the negative consequences, then assess their readiness for treatment. The important thing is that whatever their stage, we have things to offer. If they're ready for medication, we can administer, prescribe, and arrange follow-up. If they're unsure, we can try to empower them to try medication, work with our outpatient peer supporters. And if they're not ready, we have things to offer. We can offer Narcan, drug use supply, syringes, and refer them to our local harm reduction agencies. This type of model of harm reduction in the emergency department is feasible, and importantly, it helps to build trust by accepting the patient's viewpoint and empowering them to make decisions. Now let's change gears a little bit and start to talk about how to actually incorporate these strategies into your emergency department. When I look back at implementation at Bay State, there were four key components that helped us to succeed, which included having a clinical champion, or even better, champions, engaging providers in education and feedback, collaborating with the community, and having assistance from hospital legal and compliance. Those are so important that we absolutely have to repeat them. Those four key components were having a clinical champion, engaging providers in education and feedback, community collaboration, and having assistance from your hospital legal and compliance departments. Now, with regards to clinical champions, this is probably the most important factor. Nearly every successful program I know starts with someone who is interested in seeing that program develop, a clinical champion. Clinical champions help with implementation, education, feedback, and they're a liaison for the community. Those of you listening to this presentation, you already have an interest. I encourage you to become that champion. It doesn't mean devoting all of your practice to opioid use disorder. However, becoming a champion for a particular area offers many benefits. Personally championing the treatment of ED patients with opioid use disorder has resulted in collaborations, engagement with my community, grant funding, and has helped to change my view on how I treat what are classically defined as difficult patients, chronic pain, mental health, 
And that really helps and increases job satisfaction as an emergency physician. The next key component is education. The treatment of opioid use disorder in the emergency department is still relatively new. And your providers will likely require some training to feel comfortable with that process. Now, it's really important to note that that training, if you are a clinical champion, does not all just fall on you. There are amazing resources through the EQUAL initiative, through ASEP, and even already established in community organizations that you can use for your providers. Now, additionally, under education, giving your providers feedback has really been critically important to us to sustain some of our programs. And that's something we'll highlight later. Next is community collaborations, really establishing relationships with the community organizations already doing the work to treat opioid use disorder. Again, this can really become an amazing experience, especially in a smaller community, really going above and beyond to help your patients. One example of a community organization doing great work in our community is Tapestry Health, who produced the movie Say It Nicer, meant to address stigma and bias in the community, which has been a powerful education resource for both our emergency providers and our community members. Finally, and this is one that people don't sometimes expect, but having a good working relationship with legal and compliance in the hospital can really help streamline many of the harm reduction initiatives. And that includes helping with release of information, memos of understanding, and advising on state laws. It's really unfortunate, but treatment of opioid use disorder is still burdened by regulations and guidelines that can be confusing to overcome. Legal and compliance really can help to understand and streamline that process. A practical example, legal helped us to create simple memos of understanding with our methadone clinics. So we don't have to fax releases of information every time we want to confirm a methadone dose, saving a lot of time on the back end. With that, I want to spend the remainder of time to really talk about how we've used some of these key components to establish our programs at Bay State. Now, for those that don't know, Bay State is comprised of four hospitals. The flagship is Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, Mass., which is just outside of Boston, as we like to say. Bay State's the regional tertiary academic medical center and treats about 122,000 patients annually. In terms of opioid burden, Bay State Springfield, on average, sees about 1.5 non-fatal overdose visits per day and around two to three patients who are in opioid withdrawal per week. The three other hospitals, Franklin, Noble, and Wing, are located in the surrounding communities. Each of those hospitals treats around 20 to 30,000 patients per year. In terms of opioid burden, consistent with other community hospitals, the opioid burden is less. So let's start the conversation by talking about our ED buprenorphine program, which has been one of the longest programs that we've had in the treatment of patients with opioid use disorder. Really, the, the goal of this is to talk less about the specific details of our protocol and a bit more about how and why we implemented it, as well as some of the differences in implementing this at different hospitals. So just as a review, buprenorphine or buprenorphine combined with naloxone, known as suboxone, is first-line medication for the treatment of opioid use disorder. As a partial agonist, it treats withdrawal, cravings, and use, while potentially offering some protection against future overdose by binding tightly to the mu receptors and potentially blocking other opioids. In addition to its efficacy, buprenorphine has fewer regulations than the other treatment, methadone, which is the only other approved opioid agonist therapy in the U.S., and currently can either be given in the emergency department, prescribed, or both. Now, across all of our hospitals, our ED Bute program, the foundation is the same. The focus is on treating opioid withdrawal. Now, despite what you had previously learned, opioid withdrawal kills. And it kills because opioid withdrawal leads to those nearly impossible to control cravings. 
which results in use, in overdose, in subsequent infections and death. Now for us, we used incentives and we used requirements. And because of that, nearly all our attending emergency physicians have their X waiver to prescribe. Phew. And now, currently, with the training requirement removed, many of our advanced practitioners are also waivered. Our philosophy amongst all our hospitals is to have a low barrier to offer BUP and encourage longer prescriptions. You can see these are our only inclusion and exclusion criteria, including age, 16 years old or greater. They have to have opioid use disorder, and they have to be interested in BUP. That's it. With regards to exclusion or contraindications, if they have chronic pain and they're being co-managed with prescribed opioids, that can get a little tricky. If they have overt liver failure with stigmata, if they are altered, and if they have recent methadone treatment within the past five days, those are things that are a little more complicated for our providers and we list them as exclusions. You can see in this, there is no emphasis on past bup failures. There's no emphasis on diversion of bup. There's no emphasis on any repeat visits, which for the record has not been an issue for our emergency department since starting our bup program years ago. The reason we do this is because it's the realization that Recovery from a chronic disease is difficult. That relapse and non-compliant, they're part of recovery. And that even if the patient doesn't connect with follow-up, even just providing that single prescription may save their life. Now, specific to Springfield, given there's a higher proportion of patients with opioid use disorder, as well as being an academic hospital, we've established a few clinical champions who have pretty broad authority to implement different programs. We've also established a more formal follow-up program now, we don't have resources or an infrastructure for an in-person bridge clinic, so we have tried to compensate for that instead by having 24 to 48-hour clinician phone or telehealth follow-up, combined with the fact that we have standard walk-in appointments at two of our comprehensive outpatient suboxone clinics, which are actually run by our mental health agencies. Additionally, because we have a 24-hour inpatient pharmacy, we are able to provide five-day take-home suboxone packs which are available for those who have insurance issues or are just unable to make it to the pharmacy. These different aspects are something that is unique to Springfield and, as you'll see, is a little bit different than what we have at our community hospital. For example, Franklin does have a clinical champion. However, they don't have a 24-hour inpatient pharmacy, so it's more difficult and we don't have those five-day Suboxone packs. Further, because of its size and resources, Franklin actually relies on community partners for follow-up which includes a complex care team, which is funded by a HRSA grant, which does amazing follow-up on those patients. In another contrast, Noble is a little bit different. Noble is in an area that has historically been less open to the idea of harm reduction. And as such, it has fewer surrounding resources. However, even with fewer resources, attendings are still all DEAX waiver. They can administer a prescribed buprenorphine, and they've established referral to a local suboxone clinic for post-ED follow-up. And I think it's really important to see the differences in these EDB programs. You know, this is very similar how we treat patients with STEMI. Bay State Springfield is the Cath Cabbage Center. Even so, we still get STEMIs in these community emergency departments. The treatment is just slightly different based on those resources, lytics and emergent transfer. You know, I think sometimes we often read about comprehensive programs with extra staff and resources and bridge clinics, and that can be a bit overwhelming. And while that should be the gold standard that we strive to achieve, Adapting your EDBU program to your particular hospital is important if we're really going to increase the availability of treatment. Now, one of the key components to the success of the EDBU program has been feedback to providers. We try to provide 
as much positive feedback to providers after they've started Bupe as we can. And this happens through the messages that we give, as well as through highlighting things during conference. I will tell you there's no better way to encourage providers to consider Bupe than by recognizing their efforts and giving them feedback, especially when the patient is doing well, thanks to their efforts. When I can say that you potentially saved a life because the person that you treated has continued on their medication treatment and is doing well and is stabilized, that's where we really get the folks convinced to continue buprenorphine and to continue taking that time. So I want to highlight that provider feedback as one of the key components. Second program I want to talk about is what we call our harm reduction program. And and the idea of this is that patients who are not ready for medication treatment, we found a gap. We, We really didn't have too much to offer them initially. So in thinking in terms of harm reduction, what we did was we created resources, including take-home Narcan and drug use supply kits, that the goal is to help foster trust and potentially prevent an overdose or infection until the patient might in the future consider medication treatment. Now, with regards to the take-home Narcan, research has clearly shown that Narcan prescriptions do not get filled. Further, the cost of Narcan, if you buy it from the pharmacy, for some can be prohibitively expensive. Recognizing this need, We first paired with a local community partner to obtain and begin offering Narcan from the emergency department. Further, Massachusetts Department of Public Health began allowing reimbursement of take-home Narcan, and I've put the QR code for that bulletin for anyone interested. With that combined, we were able to work with our hospital pharmacy to put take-home Narcan in our ED Pexis. This is over about the past year to year and a half. Overall, just through Bay State Springfield, we've distributed over 200 kits to patients within the past year. Now, with regard to our drug use supply kits, unfortunately, we're all seeing more injection-related complications. And we all know by the time they have endocarditis or an epidural abscess, really their prognosis is really poor. Therefore, you know, our patients who inject drugs, especially those not ready to stop, we worked with our local harm reduction agency to come in and train our providers how to talk to them about avoiding infection. Simple things, wash your hands, wipe your skin before you inject, use new supplies. And we work to create kits that we can give out to patients, which include syringes and fentanyl test strips. Now, you'd be surprised. Many patients that we present with this have been incredibly thankful. They commonly tell us that a doctor has never talked to them in that way. Our kits are pretty inexpensive. It's a few dollars a kit, and they are freely distributed to any and all who are interested. Now, in thinking about our kits, the the key group here was really actually legal and compliance. Being one of the first that we knew about to offer kits from the emergency departments, we were really unclear regarding the law and, and what we could legally do. Thankfully, we kind of already had a good relationship with our legal team. They were involved with our EDBUP. They attended some of our harm reduction conferences. So we already had them on board and understanding that this was important. And we were able to work with them to actually determine if kits, specifically syringes, were acceptable to distribute to our patients in Massachusetts. Interestingly, their findings largely came from a Massachusetts Supreme Court ruling between the aid support group versus the town of Barnstable, which I've quoted up here, stated that the plain language of the statutes do not proscribe or prohibit free distribution of hypodermic needles by a private individual or organization, such as ASGCC, that does not operate a program implemented by DPH. It really was because of this extra work with legal and the ability of legal to say that this was okay, that not only are kits available in the emergency department, but in other departments, specifically OBGYN has really done a great job uptaking kits, as well as actually being uptaken by different hospitals outside of Bay State itself in the Valeria. The last thing I, I want to touch on is methadone. 
Now, this is a fairly new project that we're currently working on. But again, it goes along the lines of how do we provide harm reduction? How do we approach patients and their needs who come in with opioid use disorder? And, you know, for many of us, I think, especially in New England and the Northeast that are treating patients with opioid use disorder, especially those patients that use fentanyl, are starting to find that buprenorphine doesn't seem to work quite as well. And there are a lot of different reasonings and potential thoughts why. But overall, what we're seeing is that patients are experiencing more withdrawal, including precipitating withdrawal when they shouldn't be. And many of our patients are actually refusing treatment because of those bad experiences with buprenorphine. Now, methadone, as I mentioned before, is the only other agonist opioid treatment uh, approved in the U.S. and has outcomes similar, if not better, than buprenorphine. The problem with methadone has been both increased stigma, it has been around longer and has been stigmatized longer, as well as the very real regulatory barriers, mostly having to obtain near-daily dosing at a registered methadone clinic. This in itself has made it difficult to imagine that methadone could ever be considered as a treatment for patients with opioid use disorder discharged from the emergency department. However, again, this is where our, our key components come in and where it all kind of comes together. Having worked as clinical champion for a few years, we were able to really make strong community connections. And when this opportunity to really think about buprenorphine isn't working as well, maybe we should consider methadone arose. We had already established relationships with some of our methadone providers who had trusted us and we had worked together and were actually enthusiastic to help. One such person that I want to highlight is Dr. Ruth Potee, who's been a champion for the treatment of opioid use disorder for some years and currently oversees multiple methadone clinics in our area. With her collaboration and guidance, we created a process by which ED patients with opioid use disorder who are interested in medication but not interested in Suboxone can actually start methadone and be both seen and dosed the next day at an outpatient methadone clinic. They have to understand this protocol would not have been possible if we didn't already have strong working relationships together in treating opioid use disorder in our community. So let's bring it all home. Really, our goal in, in presenting this is a comprehensive adaptive harm reduction program. The whole idea is that we can offer resources and help patients with opioid use disorder at whatever stage of recovery. Further, although each of our hospitals has similar foundations to each program, each program functions slightly differently based on the local needs and resources. Similar to the STEMI model, our larger program with more resources serves as a hub, whereas our community hospitals have programs that are developed specifically to their needs and resources. And although I'll tell you our programs are far from perfect, hopefully they all offer a level of care that treats patients with opioid use disorder with respect and autonomy, no matter where they're treated. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dr. Soros. That was incredible. And I especially appreciate the approach to compassionate care in the emergency department for patients that sometimes can be a little bit difficult for us to deal with if we don't have the right mindset. So I, those comments from you really spoke to me. I want to review for the listeners the four key components to having success in creating a harm reduction program around the treatment of opiate use disorder in the emergency department. Those four things that Dr. Suarez mentioned way back at the beginning of the program were having a clinical champion, engaging providers in education and feedback, collaboration with the community, and having assistance from your hospital and legal compliance department. Dr. Suarez goes through each of those in order and gives ideas and examples of how it has been done successfully. It's worth going back and taking a listen. We're going to stop it right there for today. 
I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. You can find the rest of our ASAP Equal podcast series through the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com, or through the ASAP Equal hub. Thank you.